Everybody has a favorite child. I baloney if you don't. Anyway, it's funny you said that about the four kids. My in-laws used to live with us as well. So we'd go to dinner, and you'd go to a restaurant. How many? Ten. And they literally looked at you like you had something growing up. Ten. So, you know, you hear a lot of stories from, you know, realtors and lenders. They're so busy. They're so busy. No, you're not. I can see your numbers. Like, right, I've had a guy sitting in front of me a few weeks. He'll tell me how much business he did. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, here we are today with John Horton. He is the branch manager of Prime Lending and the leader of Prime Lending in the state of Illinois. Um, John Horton, super excited to have you here. We'd love to kick it off with a story, man. So could you tell us about one of your craziest experiences in the real estate world? Yeah, I'll tell you, crazy stories pretty much are daily. But the ones, I mean, after doing this for 32 years, it's really relationship and family based. And I remember we closed on this loan. Lady didn't think she was going to make the closing because she was about to have a baby. So it's not a joke, but at the closing as a gift, I gave him a wiffle ball bat and a wiffle ball. And I said, you may think this is weird, but in about three or four years, I want you to send me a picture. Five years later, I get a picture of her and her husband and her son hitting his first wiffle ball in their backyard. And it was, you know, it was one of those things like five years later, you still keep in touch with them. But for them to actually remember that and bring it out, out of the thousands of deals that I've done, I that, that drove home to me is this is relationship, man. This is, this is what it means. You're helping people. It's not a transaction. It is a business but really helping people and making those memories are, are insane. I think the kid's like 21 now. I probably bumped into him at a bar last week and don't remember him. But still, you make those lifelong memories for your clients, which I think is is really the bottom line in this business. Yeah, which is such a great thing, man. I, I appreciate that story because these people do these transactions a few times in their life. And when you can make it fun, it it makes it a lot better. I kind of wonder too, like I'm I'm sensing like there might be some hidden genius behind this idea beyond the relational element, right? Because when you think about what's the average time frame between when a person buys and when they refinance or when they sell, sell, right? If you're if you're giving them a gift and and saying, hey, three to six years from now, right, yeah. send me a picture. That might be like prime time. There might there might be some method to that madness there obviously in addition just being a good guy well yeah i mean the average i didn't think i was that smart man but i appreciate you i appreciate you thinking i am but it's the average uh, well it's almost i think the average time a person keeps a mortgage is about seven years whether that's refund yeah. always depending on rates but kids growing up kids moving out so it's about a seven-year time frame on the mortgage uh, holding that mortgage yeah which is really interesting because we just had a guest on recently that talked about that how because most people are not holding their mortgage more than seven years, they're always in that early interest phase and they're mm -hmm. never really getting ahead. And so yep. he was actually encouraging them to use other tools as HELOCs. And maybe that's something we can get into a little bit later. But what I'd like you to do is take us through your journey. What led you to be a lender and why that as opposed to maybe other financial services? Well, I'll tell you, I actually had a communications degree and did radio for several years after college. But then when you get married and start having kids, not the most stable job in the world. Because like they say, there's always someone better than you out there. So keep your bags packed and get ready to move to a different state. So I literally ended up getting a job in a bank on accident. I live in a small town like Mayberry. I just got back from hanging out with a buddy in Cleveland for a few years and in the bank, I'm like, I need a job. And the guy said, be here Monday, you're a personal banker. I don't know what the hell a personal banker was, but all right, Monday I'm there. Anyway, a few years forward, I started referring mortgages over to my buddy. I'm like, you know what? This looks cool. I like sales. I don't like a nine to five. I like the relationship. I like shaking hands and kissing babies. And 32 years later, this is where we, and I literally could not spell mortgage when I started, but I knew I knew people, I knew, I could work a room. I was hoping it'd work and it worked out well. It worked out really well. Absolutely tremendous, John. Can we talk about the journey a little bit? So, I mean, it looks like you kind of stumbled into this career. Mm -hmm. So like, how did it, what were, what were the expectations versus the reality? You know, and a lot of it is, is great leadership. I mean, my first boss actually saw him last night at a, at a banker's event. He really sat down and said, here's what you got to do. Mortgage business is a hundred percent commission. So, you know, you always, you're not going to win every day, but I used to have a lady that used to work for me that would kill it 
And her motto is you wake up every morning with zero. You know, it's your own business. Sweep off that front porch and, and get to put that put that open sign on and get to work. So, I mean, the expectations really leading a team, making sure they're successful. I would never do anything. I would never ask them to do anything I wouldn't do. So I'm not going to ask you to call in a realtor. I'm not going to ask you to make a cold call unless I do it and that it's successful. So really the expectations are I'm a crazy positive person. Man, you wake up every day, jump on the floor, start your day, and let's do it. And just and stay positive. And, and it really does come back. I never believe in the gratitude and all that other stuff. And all of a sudden, I took a class. It was called Ninja Mortgage. And you walk out of there, you're on fire. But I'll tell you, it's all common sense. It's just keeping it in the forefront of your mind every day. Here's what I want to do. I want Like this morning, I woke up. I said, I got a deal to take at 9. I got the podcast at 9.30. I got a club. My son has a football game at 4.30. Those were three things I wanted to do today. You know what? I just won the day. I got two out of the three. Mm -hmm. I'll see him at 430. You're not going to win every day, but you go to bed. You're like, what did I want to do? What did I do? So you wake up positive. You go to bed positive because you hit all your goals. So I think the expectations really are making goals achievable. Don't be crazy. You know, don't be nutty because you're going to get down on yourself. Little little baby steps, man, and just keeping it positive and, and making those expectations. So you might have already answered this, but I kind of want to dive in a little bit here. So you essentially, you said none of this gratitude stuff, and yet you're a very positive and happy person. Mm -hmm. So you kind of reference there the concept of small goals, easily achievable. Is that kind of your main strategy for happiness is doing something that you can win at every day and those wins accumulate to happiness? Absolutely. Or are there other things that attribute to that positivity? No, that's just one of them. And hanging out with the right people. You know, and, and now I do believe in that grid. I thought I was joining a cult when I went into this ninja mortgage. And the guy runs a ninja real estate class, Larry. He's a genius. So I got in and I'm like, whatever. I'm like, I can't criticize it. Let's do it. Five, five handwritten thank you notes a day. Ten reach out on the, on the phone every day. Just it start building and building. And the thing that kills me is I don't care if your reach out is on Facebook or, or whatever. But you got to get those five handwritten notes. And when you call someone, they thank you for calling. What was I going to do? And, and thank you for being you. Thanks for the rate. You know, thanks for this. It's, it, it really boils down to common sense. And when you're talking to a, a salesperson, I don't care if they're in selling cars or mortgages, when they complain, stop complaining. You know, you're going to complain. That's where your mindset's going. And it goes right back to that mindset. It goes back to that book, that five, four, three, two, one, you know, with uh, Mel Robbins. It just, it's a whole crazy mindset that before you know it, it starts rolling and it starts happening. And, if it's working, why stop it? Absolutely. Um, I'm a big fan of that book as well. Um, so obviously it looks like you're training a lot of lenders. I would be curious to know, like, what are the top two or three challenges that a new lender faces when they, when they enter this market? I think right now, if you have not been a lender, um, it's a tough market. You know, you may not have those relationships. You don't see a lot of companies now hiring people without a book of business or that haven't been in it. Because if you're jumping in here and you haven't been calling on those realtors, those CPAs, those wealth managers, that you haven't been calling on referral sources, it, it's a tough business to start. Again, you're on commission. You know, you you, you got to keep it positive. Even the, even the lenders that have been in it, it's just keeping their head in the game. You know, we know it's tough. We know it's tough out there, but it's weeding out the market. You know, you keep making those phone calls. Sooner or later, you're going to get that call back because that lender that worked for XYZ is no longer in the business. So I think really the training right now is keeping people's head in the game, being uh, working outside of the box. All right, this product doesn't work, but this product does. You, I haven't sold an arm or sold points in 20 years. You are now having to sell points to get your par pricing. It's not anything that I make money off of, but secondary market sets those pricing. And if there's not a par price, you might be paying a point and a half for a mortgage, which is weird, And but it's everywhere. So it's, it's the competition. It's, it's pretty level playing field. So I want to dive in. I mean, because you have 32 years of experience in the mortgage business. So you have gotten to see a few things. A lot of our guests on your happen to be younger. There's some that are experienced vets like you. You've seen some market cycles. Mm -hmm. So we're in potentially a tough market cycle as you are alluding to. Can you tell me the evolution of some of the market shifts you've seen and how the challenges have come and how 
maybe the challenges we might face would be similar. Maybe some insights for people that this might be their first market market shift. I like the word that you used, experienced and not old. So I greatly appreciate it. So here is a visual aid for your question. This is it, man. This is about as fancy as I get on the computer. This is 1982, 18% in mortgage rates, 18% in the mortgage rate. The average mortgage rate in the history of rates is 7.7. That's the, that's the flatline average. So I think really getting into it, and I've been through it, and you get through it. And again, last night we were at a mortgage event, and it was an award ceremony. And everybody that won pretty much said, what are you complaining about, man? This, this is the market. This is where we're at. Historically, rates are still good, uh, depending on the product, credit, down payment, everything else. But, you know, you look back over the last three years, and the millennials and other people getting in the business have never seen a mortgage rate without a two or 3% handle in front of it. You know, they went to four, they were having a stroke. Now we're looking at seven. You know, it's out there. I always tell people, buy the house and marry the rate. You can always divorce that rate when rates come down. If it's something you want to do, good investment. The average household, 18%, uh, 18% increase every single year for the last two years. So people are sitting on a ton of equity and, and they're expecting it maybe to average out about 9%, but still 18%. A year in equity on a house it can go down as fast as it goes up believe me but it's still it, you buy it you pay it a little higher but you're getting your return in the equity so let's dive into comparisons of the market so i love how you illustrated the rates i mean we're comparing a six seven percent interest rate right now with an 18 percent at one point i feel like let's say i want to play devil's advocate let's say i want to play the the new agent in the game that's just maybe pessimistic. Mm -hmm. So tell me about transaction counts. Tell me about the fact that maybe these rates, these prices, I should say, have been built around the fact that rates have been artificially low for, for probably one of the longest times in, you know, U.S. history. Mm -hmm. So is there any credence to any of that? Like, were, was transaction volumes high when the market rates were 18% or were they abysmal as well? If we were trying to compare the, the market situations, the competitive natures, how would you equate the one we're in now to the one in the 80s? Well, I'll tell you, in the 80s, there was more supply in the market. You know, you're looking at all these numbers. That's where you're running into a big issue. Now, there's just not enough homes in the market. They were talking yesterday, and I forgot what I was watching, but it showed the number of listings, which is huge. But then it, you had to subtract the number of homes in contract. You can't count those because they're already sold. That number, I want to say, was like 782,000 homes available. And I, that's nothing. So, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a tough question because it's tough to compare. Because you were looking, I think, early 90s, it was 2.7 million homes for sale. Right now, we're at 782,000 once we take out the ones under contract. So, transactions would be there if there would be a flood of houses on the market. But you're still seeing some realtors, you know, when you look them up, having killer years, having some of their best years. You're seeing some loan officers that have been in the business having some of their best years. So transaction-wise, I think it's tough only because the supply is not there for the demand. So it's it's a, it's kind of an unequal it, – it's tough to answer just because the numbers are so skewed because the the, uh, the supply of the market. Yeah. Um, that's a great answer. That actually brings me to like a curiosity question because you've been doing this for so long, right? So like once the interest rates hiked a few months ago, mm -hmm. um, there was a very clear demand decrease. I mean, I felt it palpably. Um, it was very obvious. So like right now, I kind of feel like we're in a low inventory market. I just checked yesterday. There's still one month supply. So inventory is still historically low, but you know, you don't have the very high demand anymore. The demand is decreasing. So like, have we ever been in a market that was low inventory and fairly low demand at the same time? I don't think so. It's almost like a weird, perfect storm. I had a lady call me up maybe a month ago and she was, John, my house has been on the market for three weeks. What's wrong with this market? I'm like, how old are you? Three weeks is nothing. But they lived through, oh my God, I got nine offers. Eight of them are above asking price. It's a cash offer. They don't need an appraisal. It's been on the market for an hour and a half. It ain't happening anymore. So you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's kind of weird. Supply's not there. People are kind of backing off going, you know what? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till next year, see what rates do. 
And then again, you got the first time home buyers that can't rate, wait. And then you got renters that are paying $2,600, $3,200 a month for an apartment because the landlords are taking advantage of it. So it's one of those things where it's just education and communication, letting people know might not be the right time. Don't do it. Or it really is the right time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it probably benefits just to kind of see a little bit of this play out. You know, if, if you're on one side or the other, I mean, obviously as agents and lenders, we're generally trying to encourage people not to be overcome by too much fear. But if we were to dive in, like just even a little bit deeper. So we've talked about the interest rates. We've talked about that being built around. One of the things that I really appreciate you saying is there's still agents out there that are doing extremely well. There's still lenders out there doing extremely well. I think a lot of times when we talk about this, it might provide too much fear to agents and lenders when, when in reality, these, these shifts might hurt the masses, so to speak, but any particular person really driving forward and working hard, this probably will have, I'm guessing, almost little or no effect on. Would you, would you agree? I agree. And it's almost like a rubber band. You know, people are being pulled and stretched and you're, you're staying up all night because you don't have a contract coming in. You don't have a deal closing, but you stick with it. You stick with it. And when that rubber band pops back, the people that are in it, the people that are still reaching out to their referral sources, people like this, being able to do, have an opportunity to do a podcast. There's not a lot of people doing it. I mean, there's a lot of people sitting at home right now watching TV and eating donuts, complaining the market's bad. Well, guess what? When that rubber band mm -hmm. pops, they're still going to be sitting on the couch because they're losing business. They're losing business. It's like lenders that, you know, I try to recruit, but someone wrote them a big check, so they went somewhere else. Well, if you can't close your loans, I don't care how big your check is, you're losing business. You know, now when you, you, you're in a two-year clawback or three-year, here's a big check, but you got to stay here for three years. Now you're not closing business. Now you're losing referral sources. And some of those guys where they're at are killing it. But it, it, again, it comes back to be careful what you wish for because when it comes back, it's going to come back strong. And you just want to be, you want to have the right attitude to stay in it and, and, and keep doing your job every day. So people remember you're getting involved, doing podcasts, going to events last night. It's just, it's, it's sales, man. You guys know what it is. Of course. Yeah. So, I mean, as I'm prepping for a shift in the market as an investor and as a realtor, you know, I'm prepping in different ways. Right. So I'm I'm building REO connections right now. So if that does happen, I'm going to be ready if the market goes in a decline. Right. And and short sales and things of that nature. As an investor, I'm not looking at flips right now. I prefer to do creative terms or something like that, right. because, you know, when I'm projecting ARVs, I mean, they're, I have to project conservatively. So I'm curious, like as a lender. What kind of specific shifts would you be thinking about in terms of marketing strategies and things of that nature? I think just breaking the bubble on one of those huge myths. And it's, it's, I keep saying it, but it's education. Realtors are starving for education. There's a new program coming out next week about student loans, and it's going to change the whole market. Um, different products. You don't need 20% down to buy a house. You don't need 20% down to buy a house. I don't know how many times you can say it, but you put it out. Well, are you kidding me? VAs, thank God for their service. 100% financing. If you're certain uh, income, 3.5%. FHA, 3.5%. Like, I don't need 20%. I've been saving forever. No, you don't. You're going to have mortgage insurance, but you're going to get out of it because the market, it it's education and it kills me. And you're on with realtors or whoever. I mean, I... I always tell people, I couldn't bake a cake. Teach me how to do it. I'm not a baker. I'll buy one. So it's the same thing. Don't, and believe me, I'm no genius, man. You saw you saw my Excel spreadsheet. You saw how far this goes. It's really down to basic common sense, knowing your products, knowing how to help people, and just being honest and calling people back. It kills me. I don't have one text or one voicemail at the end of the day or one email, nothing. But every day you call my phone. I'm in today. I got a meeting at one. People know where I'm at. I know I totally went off the subject, but it's 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 kind of going back to shifting the market is doing what you've always done if you've been good at it. If you've not been good at it, you got to change what you're doing. So I think doing what the team is doing is really preparing for any market because we're not going anywhere. Well, and, and you're, you're sticking to fundamentals, which mm -hmm. I think is, is killer. You know, I mean, there's in this world where you got a million shiny objects, mm -hmm. I could tell the foundation of your business is build relationships with people, do what you say you're going to do, be where you say you're going to be, have people know where they can find you. And, you know, I mean, 
chasing after some of the new innovation can be good as, as long as you're sticking in discipline to the fundamentals and not missing out on those. Um, yeah, so I really appreciate you hammering on that. That That is obviously a key pillar of, of business. So one thing I want to ask you about, because the last crash, which was so different than what we're experiencing now for so many different reasons, a lot of which people were talking about was based on these really bad mortgages that were mm-hmm. issued. We're in a place now where it's getting much, much harder to qualify for a mortgage based on the fact that the rates are going up. What do you think might happen? What would be your recommendation to LOs? Do you recommend they give out these adjustable products to get loans done? Do you recommend they tell their borrowers, hey, I'd, I wouldn't do this? Or, or do, you, do you think that if LOs get too crazy trying to get loans done, it might speed up or accelerate the crash, the recession? Well, I mean, the, the I got to remember those loans. I think we had them on our books for a week. You know, the stated income, stated asset. People would walk in the office going, I have $300,000 in the bank and I make 200000 a year. Awesome. You're closing Tuesday. Congratulations. Things are great. You know, and again, those are long gone. You can pick up some of those somewhere, but they're going to cost you a fortune. Arm products. I mean, I've qualified a couple of people now just because they had to move. They sold their house. But what happens on those arm products, rate's going to be lower, but we qualify them at a higher rate. So we qualify them as if it's going to adjust. We don't want them getting in at, I'm going to say five and a half, it's a little higher. And then not being able to do it when it jumps to seven and a half. So there is more restrictions and guidelines. The underwriting um, is is crazy. I don't want to say tight because I could never be an underwriter. But they look at a lot of things, equal lending, you know, fair housing. They also look at compensating factors. Hey, this guy may have a high ratio, but... Here's some things. And it's here, it's crazy humanistic underwriting. Pick up the phone, call the underwriter. Hey, I got a question. Oh, let's see what we can do. See how we can make it work. Which again, comes back to being awesome. And if it doesn't work, you know what? You're on my books to call you every two months. You fix that credit, pay off that collection. Let's go. You know, we're, we're, you're going to have a house by June. So it's, it's a weird, it's just a different time. But those crazy products, you're not seeing a lot of banks that have the investors, you know, Fannie and Freddie, offer those anymore. Arms are good. They will give you, buy downs are phenomenal. Basically, that's where you literally, sellers been doing it now, buying down your rate, three, two, one, three year, two year, one year, making the house more affordable. But again, it's a deep dive into employment history and all the other stuff. So the basic products are still, still what's keeping the market going. Absolutely fantastic answer. I'm actually curious now. So like, um, what do you recommend to the consumer um, in terms of making sure that the lender that they're talking to is the right lender to work with? Like what kind of red flags, if you were on the other side of the table, would you be looking for when you're talking with somebody in your position? Well, if they just call me, it takes everyone else out of the equation and they don't have to worry about a thing. No, and it's, it's I always tell people and I do a, a mortgage Monday, Monday morning mortgage update on Facebook. And someone had brought up that question. I said, don't, and I aged myself. I said, don't get a lender out of the yellow pages. You know, don't get it off of Google. Don't get your home inspector. Don't get your realtor. Go off of a referral. Everyone's closed on a house. So my neighbor, who was your realtor? If you don't know anyone, who was your lender? Were you happy with them? And I also say, when you're picking your lender or your home inspector, or if you're in an an attorney state, they work for you. They work for you. You interview them. They're, everyone's making money off the deal. Interview them. And if you don't like, move on. We had some people, uh, one of the ladies in the office got a deal a couple of weeks ago. They were two weeks from closing and the lady couldn't stand her lender. Couldn't, rude, not calling back, but ready to close. She fired him. She said, I'm out. I'm gone. She called up her, her agent and said, who do you use? She goes, I use so-and-so prime lending. Got the deal closed. So it's as easy to win as it is to lose. But to build your team when you're buying a house, you're selling a house, interview a man. Go off of referrals. Don't go off of Yelp and Google. And People pay to get their names on there. It's just an interview process and have a good, solid, even the movers. Home, you're moving. You don't want to do that. You know, you want someone that comes off a good referral source. It's all referral business. I want to dive into some of the business structure on the loan side. So I've originated loans for a a few years. I actually just am going to let my loan license lapse. And 
so I have a little bit of understanding of, of how the process works. So in as a business person, you want to obviously maximize revenue, maximize goodwill amongst your clients, et cetera. When you, so now that you've been in the game 32 years, let's talk about pro, <laughs> yeah, processing fees. Do you charge processing fees? Like how, how do you balance increasing your, you know, income because you're getting better all the time and, you know, giving the client the best deal. Yeah. Processing fees, any fees are all compliance driven. So our processing fee and underwriting fee are set. You know, the, the Illinois market may have a different one than Cleveland. They have a different one. It's just the cost of living. And, you know, someone I was someone that said, if you charge a $600 processing fee in Green Bay, they'll leave because every other bank is 275 So it's really... And believe it or not, and you know this from lending, and Tim, you know it from real estate, banks lose money on mortgages until they start paying them back. The, the cost to put a mortgage on the books, do the whole process, I want to say is like twelve grand, And I could be way off, but I know I'm not that far off. Between your processing and your underwriting fee, well, why are you charging that? Well, you know what? Does your attorney charge you by the hour if you work for them? You got, you got to cover some of your nut. You know, I'm making nothing off of processing and underwriting. I'm making nothing if they pay points because it's just to, to get that par rate we talked about. So it, it's, and you get it, well, this, this bank's only charging me this. I, I can't mess with the fees. Now you're messing with fair lending. If I don't charge you a processing fee and I charge the next guy, well, now I'm in trouble. If you're a veteran, you're getting a VA loan, there are no bank fees. There's no processing or um, underwriting fee. It's just, and that's across the board. So, you know, maximizing the revenue is, you know, you got your power price. You need to hit 100 on every loan. Do we hit 100 on every loan? No, because you try to match, you try to work together depending on your market. So really where your revenue comes in is when people start paying back their mortgage. People freak out. I'm going to have this loan for 30 years. It's 250. I'm going to pay you 640,000. That's how we stay in business. I'm only kidding. But that's true. I mean, that's the interest, like interest on a credit card. How do you think all the credit card companies stay in business? So it's, it's very fair. It's equal across the board. Every lender is the same. I just tell people, you got to go with who you like. And, and, and no, one's, no one's building in junk fees because no one's going to pay them. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely in a more educated society in the sense that information is much more readily available, which is super nice. Mm -hmm. And with all the required documents, they're getting to see things multiple times, so on and so forth. So let's talk about the pre-approval, the underwriting process. So this is something that I got to experience on my end because we had an in-house underwriter that was unbelievable. Can you talk about what is the value of having something that's pre-underwritten Oh my before God. going out versus something that's just a pre-approval letter. Yeah, we have a product. Uh, it's called Buyer's Edge. So your pre-approval, you fill it out online. I get it back at 10, 11. You're going to have your pre-approval at about 10, 15. Very quick process. We pull credit. We run it through the automated underwriting system. We're good to go. That's step one. I take their documents. We shoot it over to underwriting. So Monday afternoon, you're going to get a fully underwritten loan commitment. So now on the weekend, you can run around town because you got your pre-approval letter. But then you're going to get this buyer's edge, which on this letter says this is not a pre-approval. This is a fully underwritten loan commitment. When they find that house, I just had one yesterday. Uh, they made an offer. All we need is the appraisal and the title they can close because it's already been fully underwritten. So technically, if this lady gives me the appraisal on Monday, she could close Friday. That would be a one-week, eight-day application to close because of the fully underwritten. And generally, the pre-approvals, if they're anyone that's self-employed, I would not give a pre-approval to, only because the Schedule C and the, all the other stuff, take that and send it to underwriting. It's only a three-day turn time at the most. So you're not wasting time. But you th you shoot out a pre-approval to self-employed, and you didn't analyze their tax returns right, you're screwed. So fully underwritten. speed. I mean, you go in to make an offer. Say the guy in front of you is doing 45 days cash. Well, you know what? I'm getting financing, but I'm already approved. I'll go 15 days. All I need is an appraisal and we can close. So those fully underwritten pre-approvals at times are beating out cash offers. Yeah, I hear you. And being a self-employed person, I can empathize with those that are self-employed. Oh, 
I have multiple LLCs, multiple things going on with properties. I have more or less abandoned the Fannie Freddie for myself <laughs> and, and just said, Hey, I'll go DSCR loans. I'll pay the extra interest point. So I don't have to show all of these different things. Yep. Um, I hear you on that. Yeah, that's super good. So, I mean, your guys' process is really tight then because, you know, ours was essentially more like we would have a few conditions, you know, but I mean, they were, they were pretty tight, but yours is like fully underwritten, of course, minus the appraisal mm-hmm. and, the, and the preliminary title report, getting the title insurance, that type of thing. So, I mean, you're closing within a week of going into contract, assuming appraisal was there on day one. And obviously it never right. is, but. And I'll tell you with the appraisal waivers, not seeing a lot of them anymore, but if there's an appraisal waiver, really you only need the three days to get the closing disclosure out. So if they come in on a Monday, we disclose on Monday, you could technically close on Friday if you have the appraisal waiver. Does it happen a lot? No. Is it a good story? Absolutely. Does it open the door to realtor offices? You bet your ass it does. Because it may not happen. It can happen. It has happened. But at least the opportunity is there that you're not waiting 7, 10, 15 days to get your approval out. Totally. And I want to dive into the value of the fully underwritten file. Because, I mean, before it was so necessary because... To get in a contract, you had to be competitive as all get out, you, whether it be the price that you offered, the speed that you can close at. Now things are slowing down, so it may appear that it's not as important. But I would I would submit it's just as important. Number one, and, and I'd love to get your insight on this, because like Tim has talked about this, I, I've had some experiences as an agent where we accept an offer, they can't close. By the time they fail, three to four weeks later, the market's already softer than it was three to four weeks prior. So, you know, can you speak to the maybe side benefits of, of this fully underwritten loan? Like think, why agents should be thinking about this? I, I think it makes them a stronger agent. You know, they're representing that client. I got a guy, I got my fully underwritten. When do you want to go? Let's go. You know what? Will another agent do that? No. Is it going to put him a little bit above the competition? Absolutely. And even though the market is softening, kind of like we talked about before, when it comes back and that agent is still doing, I got a fully underwritten, I'm ready to go, let's go. And now they're even more busy. They're busier because they were doing that during the slow times and not kind of sitting back and waiting. The relationships it builds with the loan officer is insane. Um, I have one of the guys in the office here. He has garnered more relationships from the seller's realtor because of the technology and the speed. So the side business, meaning, yep, I got my buyer's agent. I love this guy. I've been with Tim forever. You know what? Matt's on the seller side. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? How can you close this? You, you, our underwriting turn time right now, average 43 minutes. 43 minutes. And it's been that way even when it was busy. Okay, maybe it was an hour. But you'll get an email and it goes back to the communication. I call Tim and go, hey, Tim. Your client, Mr. Jones, is in underwriting. It's about 10, 15. I'll give you a call. I will call Tim back by 11 o'clock. And he will say, I didn't listen to your first voicemail. I said, my first voicemail said it's going into underwriting. Well, why are you calling me now? Because it's out and it's approved. So you do that with a seller's agent. Number one, no one calls people. No one calls people back. No one. It's easy. So you get a lender calling a realtor. And within the span of an hour, it's in underwriting. Oh, it's out and it's approved. Who is not going to be floored by that? So that's another side benefit. Not only is it approved, it's fully approved because you did the buyer's edge before we had the contract. So it's just that that circle. You just keep doing it, man. And, and the side benefit is just keeping those, and strengthening those relationships. So when it does come back, we're going to be there. Absolutely. I love that response. And I am totally 100% in line with you. Obviously, when I'm looking at offers, the one that has been fully underwritten is going to get mm. higher weight than the one that hasn't. And also, if the lender calls me, I mean, that actually makes a huge difference, especially if they talk about specifics and they tell me about their client. They could really make me feel comfortable, which obviously I could relate to my client. So these are all fantastic points. Um, just curious, like, what else do you think lenders should be doing more when working with realtors in order to make sure that they're doing the best for their client or, or let's rephrase that and say the mutual client, right? Because we're both representing the same person. Well, I'll tell you, every time we get a deal, my team gets a deal, I get a deal. First thing I do is I call each lender or each lender, each realtor on the deal. Hey, I'm just calling to introduce myself. You're going to hear from me every single week, latest by two o'clock on Friday. 
If I don't have an update, I'm still going to call you at 2 o'clock on Friday and tell you I don't have an update. Every single one, 100% of the time, it's the first time I met him, said, no, you're not. You're not going to call me. You won't call me. Besides the technology being updated, I mean, there's a lady now that's been approved. She's not closing for 30 days. I'm calling that realtor today at 2, and I'm literally calling to tell him I have nothing to tell him. But strengthening that relationship, Tim, and then calling the other realtor. We don't give any client information. Hey, their credit score is this. This is how much they make. It's real basic. But, hey, your appraisal's ordered. I know I just got your email. I know you did, but I wanted to call you anyway. Nobody calls. Strengthening that relationship is, a, especially when it's good news. And if it's bad news, it sucks. But you got to get it out of the way. If it's bad news on Monday, man, it's worse on Friday. So just rip the Band-Aid off. So strengthening the relationship is literally setting your calendar at 2 o'clock on Friday. So did you give your realtor updates? Did you give your, who calls attorneys? Nobody. Well, guess what? We do. Just keeping the loop, ready to go. And after every closing, I cannot believe you guys called. You promised me you would. And guess what? We just got a deal from the seller's agent. It's Love picking it. up the phone. And everyone has a phone. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I, I would say without fail, the vast majority, 80, 90% of lenders go dark oh. when problems happen. They go completely dark. Absolutely. And which is the most frustrating part because it's like, you know, as much as I enjoy a nice positive phone call, if I'm going to hear from you only a couple times in the transaction, at least call me when things are going wrong so we know what's going on. Yeah. But of course, that's not when it happens. They go completely dark. So I want to talk about some other things that are bad news. So when we talk about the shift in real estate, we talk about to the agents, like, I don't know if you read the book, Who Moved My Cheese? Yes. But it's, it's a, yeah, it's essentially obviously helping people come to the fact that what worked may not work. Now, obviously relationships can continue to work, but when, when you look at, you know, like say the last crash, a lot of the transactions shifted from your general, just buyer and sellers over more to an investor percentage. A higher percentage of the transactions were being conduct, conducted by investors. Is there anything that like that in the lending business where who you might pursue as a target might shift as the market shifts? You know, there's there's so many tools out there, Matt, where you could look up, you know, if I'm going to call a loan officer, I'm recruiting a loan officer, I'll throw them up on the, the thing. It tells how much business he or she has done in the last 14 months, how much it is refi, how much is purchase, um, and the realtors they deal with. So, you know, you hear a lot of stories from, you know, realtors and lenders. They're so busy. They're so busy. No, you're not. I can see your numbers. Like, right, I've had a guy sitting in front of me a few weeks. He'll tell me how much business he did. And I'm like... Are you the right guy? There's because there's no there's no business out here. So I think where you're gonna see that shift are people that just haven't been doing that consistent business development. Uh, so as far as re, or going after people, I tell my guys, if you want to go after a CPA, do it now. Because once January first comes, you're not gonna hear from them till June. So you wanna stay in their face. So it's almost like your your different lines of business, not a lot of them are cyclical. But once that tax season hits, if you're dealing with, well, you want to be out in front of them. You want to have your business cards because if they do see someone that needs to refinance, it needs to purchase. You've done your, your groundwork since June of 22. Now it's December of 22. You want to lay off them. But the other ones, pretty much people you see every day and letting people know what you do. I love how a relationship-based your approach is because in general, I think, that is the best way to do business mm -hmm. because that is the easiest way to snowball the business. You get a lot of people to know you, like you, and trust you, and then they'll refer you out. And, you know, then you don't have to be prospecting forever, but it's still a good idea to be creating new relationships that can continue to snowball also. Um, I would like to pivot this a little bit because we were talking on the pre-call a little bit. You had mentioned that for short-term rentals and for um, vacation homes, second homes, these rates have recently changed by the Freddie and Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae standards. And I would love to dive into that with you and get some more details. Oh, that's a killer. They, um, Freddie and Fannie came out and then they pulled it back. And then they came out with it again. And what it is, it's a huge, huge rate increase. I'm talking, and again, uh, this is one we just did last week. It was seven and a half and two and a half points for a second home, for a vacation home. It used to be, and it's tough to quote rates because obviously at the Can you say that number yeah, again? It was about seven and a half and two and a half points. Now, if it was a condo, you'd have a condo bump on there. If their credit score was low, your credit score. 
It's nuts. So what happened is they used to be on investment property, understandable risk-based pricing. Then they rolled it out on second homes. I don't get it because, I mean, you look at Hilton Head. We have, we have some offices in Hilton Head. They said it's killing them. Hilton Head is mainly a second home destination. And what they're charging, Fannie and Freddie's bumps on those second home and investment properties, it, it's, it's putting people out of the business. They're like, why am I paying 8% and a point or whatever it is, depending on credit down payment product. But people are shocked. They are shocked. And it's like, it's not me. You go anywhere else, it's going to happen. Um, what they did for a while there is banks opened up, some banks, a certain part of their business for portfolio. So they didn't want to have the, I mean, you're buying a, a second home in Wisconsin. It's not like you're renting it out. It's not like a high-rise condo. It's not a moneymaker, but you're paying for it. So what they did is they put out X amount of dollars in the portfolio. Well, that ran out really quick. Now everyone's going back to Fannie and Freddie investing in them. And some people just kill them. It's just, and if they get rid of it, can they come back and refinance? Absolutely. Will they get rid of it? Nobody, they don't want them. They just don't, the investors don't want them. Where you might find a little better is if you go to a bank or a lender that does a, a ton of portfolio. But again, a lot of places don't want them on the books because since COVID, a lot of things have become a riskier investment for banks. And it, Fannie and Freddie said, we got enough of them. We got enough. I think what happened is they had a percentage they could have and the percentage skyrocketed. So it's almost like you got to, you know, you need 33, 33, 33. They might have been at 50 on one of them. So they got to scale it back so they can make everything even. Okay, so let's let's just clarify that a little bit. So when you say percentage, you're not talking about percentage of default. You're talking about percentage of their portfolio that's in those loans. They want a third, let's say, in single-family primary owner homes, a third in, you know, basically secondary homes. And, and but they're, you're saying their portfolio started carrying fifty percent second homes. Correct. Yeah, rough numbers, but I think they were and again the risk factor on them. You know, you got a second home and all of a sudden you lose your job. What are you going to do? Pay your first home or your second home first? I'm going to pay my first home. Right. So according to what so, I've heard, it's, it's just really a risk-based a risk -based pricing. So I'm curious if there's any insights that can be gathered. So a lot of times, like the way I like to think is, okay, if financial institutions that have way more resources than I do in R&D at their disposal are saying, wait a second here, we're going to take a step back because of the risk. I mean, you kind of pointed out that maybe just people will, when they hit turmoil, will choose to pay their primary home as opposed to their secondary home. But do you think there also might be some insight into what they think is going to happen to the secondary home income market, like the Airbnb market? Or do you think that's not really what's being stated? Yeah, I think that's, that's way above my pay grade. I mean, I think that's, that's more of a, a financial analyst future. And I always love these future guys. I mean, I love them. I could never do their job, but they're like weathermen. Oh, it's going to be partly sunny. Well, bullshit, it's snowing outside. What are you partly sunny? You're just going <laughs> off of these models you're watching, hoping you're right. And probably historically, 90% of the time they're on. But on the sales side, we're kind of hoping they're wrong because it's their totally. job on the secondary side and the investments and everything else. But it's, it's just weird. Every day you wake up and it's like, what's happening today? What could possibly go on today in the market to make it nuts? And I know nothing about stock. I got six kids, man. I don't have a second home. I don't have stocks. I don't have anything. I got six kids that drain me, but I love them all in case you're watching. But that being said, it's you look at what's going on in the market and it's, it's, it's killing people. It's killing people. And it's all because they thought this was going to happen. No one knows. It's almost, they say, if you have stocks, if you have a 401k, you get your update, put it in the trash. Don't open it. Because it's going to be totally different in a month, totally different in a week. Totally. I love that you mentioned your six kids. And so stop me if if you don't want to go down this path. <laughs> I have four. There we go. I, you know, and pe people in California look at me like I'm oh. nuts. You know, it's like two is an accept. One's okay. Two's acceptable. Three, it's like, okay, you're a little bit off your rocker. By four, they're like, okay, you're going off the deep mm -hmm. end here. So you have six right. kids, which I mean, kudos to yeah. you. So, I mean, tell me about that. I mean, what was it like raising six kids? And, you know, like if you, if you would do it again, pitch, pitch us on why six kids. I do have a favorite. I don't care what anybody says. Everybody has a favorite child. I baloney if you don't. Anyway, it's funny you said that about the four kids. My in-laws used to live with us as well. So we'd go to dinner and you'd go to a restaurant. How many? Ten. And they literally looked at you 
like you had something growing up t- 10. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> Do you have a reservation? No, it's I'm not having the last supper. It's my family. We're just, we're just going. Even though it was a six kid, my way, eight. Oh, eight. Oh, then when COVID hit, oh, we got to sit here at separate tables. We're related. Well, six here, two, like whatever. So it is kind of funny. People do. I think we should have capitalized on it. I told my wife she should write a book. I mean, she does everything. I mean, I I don't know. None of them like me. I don't know what's going on at home anymore. It is funny, though, and I'll make it a quick story, is my favorite one just moved out Wednesday. He read an apartment with a couple buddies. One of my daughters is in college. My daughter, one of my daughters is 23. She'll be moving out soon. My son is 30. He's married. So it's literally my two younger ones at home, who did I never see anyway, junior and sophomore in high school. So I looked at my wife. I'm like, what the hell do we talk? I haven't talked to you in 30 years. What What do we talk about, man? Because it's usually let's go. This, and you find yourself, and you'll see when your kids get older, you'll get home from work, and you're, it's like 6.30 going, what do I do? I, I don't have to drive to football because the boys drive. I got... I got nothing to do. I'm going to start hanging out at my favorite kid's apartment because it's only 20 minutes away, but he won't give me a key. So long story short, would I do it again? My, they said my wife couldn't get pregnant. I hate her doctor because he's a liar. <laughs> I never, I haven't talked to him. She's like a Pez dispenser. I told the doc, I'm like, what are you, you can't, what are you nuts? Um, but it's fun. There's always something going on. You know, there's 12 pairs of shoes when I got home from work tonight with all my friends' buddies. When they weren't driving, all the bikes and the skateboards were in the house the, or in the yard and the food. And and now it's like, where is everybody? So you kind of like the quiet time. You bitch about the loud times. But now it's like, I got to talk to my wife and I got nothing to say. <laughs> That's a tremendous response. Um, I love it. Um, it's interesting how different fi- family dynamics could be, right? So, like, my wife, um, her family comes from Mexico, right? So okay. she has literally, like, 30 to 50 uncles and probably 120 cousins. Okay. I got three uncles and six cousins. Right. Yeah. And then she'll be like, oh, she'll be talking about her cousins by name, and she expects me to somehow remember them all. I'm like, I could barely remember all six of my cousins' <laughs> names. You think I'm going to be able to remember all of yours? Like, it's just simply not not even possible. Oh, no. So, um, I, I love that dynamic. I mean, I, I just think it's really interesting. Um, um, so cool, John. Like, what what is your vision for the next twelve months? Like, what what are you working on this year? Well, my wife's not pregnant, so that's good. So that's the vision. I know we're we're good there. I I think it's really just building the base, you know. And and I see your stuff that you put up, Tim. I love that. I love the positive energy you have on there. Your responses, the people that respond to you. That's the kind of people I want to hang out with for the next twelve months. There was something that was on the other day. And it said, for the next 90 days, here's what I'm going to do. And again, it comes back to these damn, these handwritten note cards. Get them out. Pick up the phone. I'm doing the same thing I've been doing. Same thing I've been doing. Maybe a little heavier, but it's, I mean, we got an Oktoberfest next week with 500 realtors. We got something next week with 30 realtors. Kind of doing the same thing. I told the team, get involved because no one's doing it. Yeah, it's going to hit the profit and loss statement, but you're kind of throwing those seeds in the ground. That old adage, if you stop now... So really for the next 12 months is, is riding this out, keep recruiting, keep hanging out with cool guys like you and and seeing where this market is. I'd be curious if we did this in a year from now, just to kind of go back mm-hmm. and see, you know, where we were, what's going on and see who's still in the business. It's a great time to learn. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I want to transition this a little bit to your purpose. So one of the questions we love to ask is if you had a billion dollars in the bank and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow, like how would you structure your life? What would freedom look like for you? You know, if my wife was here, she would tell you she hates when she goes on vacation with me. I'm not a vacation guy. You give me the weekend, it's enough. I honestly think it'd look the same. Honestly, it, it, I love to work. It's probably a sickness. Um, I remember when I was a kid, my dad's idea of it, both my parents were born and raised in Ireland. So my dad's idea of vacation would be to send me and my mom and my sister to Ireland for six weeks and he'd stay here and work. I remember being a kid going, well, that blows. Now as an adult, oh, stop it. I'd do that in a, I'd do that in a second just because why would I bring everybody down on vacation? Like when, I, when Sunday morning, we're going to Michigan State this weekend to see my daughter for her homecoming. Sunday morning, I'm out by seven. They want to stay for brunch. I'm like, my ass, let's go. Let's get home. Come on. So we're taking two cars so I can leave by seven and they can have brunch. I'll be home by 930. That's fine with me. So I really, great question. 
I, I don't think it would change. I really don't. The flexibility on the loan officer side, um, my kid, like I said, he has a game at 4.30. I can blow out of here today at 4.15. If I was 9 to 5 or punching the clock or two-minute break. But you guys know, realtors and loan officers, you work weekends, you work nights. How many realtors have to tell you that? Oh, my God, I'm so busy. No, you're not. I've seen your numbers. Take that damn thing out of your ear. I don't know who you're talking to. And stop with the engraved license plates. I sell them. No, you don't. You don't sell them. You haven't sold a house in five years. So I, would, I don't know why, why I went there. But I don't think it would change a lot, except my kids wouldn't have college loans, and I'd be free of debt. There you go. I love that. So, I mean, tip, I mean, that is the typical response of entrepreneurs. Like we're kind of just geared to work. Mm -hmm. I think like, I don't think, I don't even think I would enjoy a life where there was no passion or no pursuit of more. No. Um, so absolutely fantastic answer. It is awesome. true. I mean, even, even guys that are retired, you know, 70, 80, they say every day is a Saturday, but I'll tell you after so many Saturdays, it's like, what do I do? I, I get up, I, I get up now I'm up now what? And if you don't golf, you know, you're, you're kind of used. I, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a uh, yeah. I think I'd still be doing the same thing, man. Absolutely phenomenal. So cool, John. Like anybody listening, like what would be the best way for the audience to get in touch with you if they wanted to reach out? Absolutely, I appreciate that. They can reach me at six three zero nine one five fifty two eighty eight, or you can shoot me an email at john horton h o r t o n at primelending.com. All right. Absolutely phenomenal stuff, John. Um, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence and giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. And to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. So simply commit to taking some more action and do so within the next seven days and tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>